If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Take something iconic like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Mutiny on the Bounty is one of history's most famous naval insurrections for good reason. In 1789, a group of sailors led by Fletcher Christian seized control of the HMS Bounty from its captain, William Bly, in dramatic fashion. Bly was abandoned in the Pacific, while Christian and the other crew members eventually set up their own colony on the remote Pitcairn Island. It was a colony which remained undiscovered for more than two decades. The story of the mutiny on the Bounty has been told many times, but a new history by Harrison Christian adds a personal dimension, as the author is a direct descendant of the lead mutineer. In conversation with Rob Attar, Harrison revisits these extraordinary adventures on the South Seas and discusses his family's relationship with their famous mutinous ancestor. So Harrison, the mutiny of the bounty is a very fascinating story in itself, but you also have a personal connection to it, don't you? I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yes, that's right, Rob. So when Fletcher Christian and the Bounty Mutineers found their secret refuge in the Pacific 
following the mutiny, Pitcairn Island. Fletcher Christian had three children before he died, two sons and a daughter. And so his line miraculously continued. It, it, it shouldn't have. It seems very improbable that the mutineers started this surreptitious colony in the Pacific that wouldn't be discovered by the outside world for 20 years. But when, when the colony was, was rediscovered in the early 19th century, although Fletcher Christian had died, his children survived, as well as the descendants of, of other bounty mutineers. Fletcher Christian was my sixth great-grandfather, so my line goes back to Charles Christian, who was Fletcher Christian's second son. And in the mid-19th century, all of the bounty descendants on Pitcairn Island were relocated to Norfolk Island, which is another remote island in the Pacific. It was part of a, a British relocation project. And it turned out that eventually some of the bounty descendants became homesick and moved back to Pitcairn, and there's still a population of under 100 people on Pitcairn to this day. But there's about 2,000 people, mostly bounty descendants, who still live on Norfolk Island, which is a tiny island, almost as small as Pitcairn, between, roughly between Australia and New Zealand. So my grandfather was born on Norfolk Island, and he migrated to New Zealand as a young boy, and my father was born and raised in New Zealand, and so was I. So um, how much was Fletcher Christian and his story part of your kind of family law when you were growing up? How much was his tale told? Oh, it was a, a huge part of the family law. I, I was steeped in it from an early age. Um, and I think it, it, it meant a huge amount to my father. And my father grew up in Otahuhu, which is a, a working class suburb in, in Auckland, New Zealand. And he worked in the freezing works like his father had. Um, but he managed to pay his way through university and get himself to veterinary school. And I think a big part of that was the this sense of, of destiny, if you like, or, or specialness, just, just the idea that he, he was directly related to this, this historical figure and, and this, this, this wild tale uh, was, I think he found it hugely inspiring as do I. And, and so from a young age, uh, you know, when I went to bed, I was allowed to read, but it was often bounty books that were being fed to me. And, and I saw all the bounty movies and, and that sense of specialness and destiny, you know, it's a good feeling. And I, I spent a lot of my childhood thinking about it. So did you therefore feel a special responsibility when working on this book, that this is somebody who's important to you, important to your family, that you felt you had to get his story right? Yes, very much so. I felt I felt a heavy responsibility to get things right. And I was also, I was worried that because of my direct relation to Fletcher Christian, that I might be accused of of writing an, a, a biased or, or an unbalanced account. Uh, so I, I tried to make a special effort to, to write the, the clearest and most truthful account of the mutiny that I could. And I used my experience as a journalist. I worked as a journalist for almost a decade in New Zealand before I started writing the book. I, I tried to use that experience and to rely on the primary sources as much as possible and to really kind of cut through the noise of the 
the past couple of hundred years. I mean, this is a story that has just been played with from the outset. It's been mythologized. There have been so many fictional takes on it. And I wanted to get away from all that. So if we could go back to the start of the story, I believe that Fletcher Christian and William Bly were actually acquainted to each other even before the Voyage of the Bounty. Is that right? Yes, that's right. In fact, they were they were friends. I think they could be they could have been considered friends or family friends. And actually it seems that Fletcher Christian was a kind of protege of Bly. They had sailed together twice previously on trading runs to the West Indies. And on their second voyage to the West Indies, Bly had actually promoted uh, Fletcher Christian to second mate. And before the bounty sailed from England, Bly had hoped to make Fletcher the master of the bounty, the, the officer in charge of the ship's navigation. The Admiralty turned him down on account of Fletcher Christian's inexperience. But during the bounty's outward voyage, Bly actually ended up promoting Fletcher Christian to acting lieutenant, which was a higher rank than master. So all that suggests that Bly saw himself as a kind of mentor of Fletcher Christian and was maybe taking a leaf from the mentor-pupil relationship that Bly had had once had with the late Captain James Cook because Bly had sailed with James Cook on his third and final voyage to the Pacific where Cook was murdered in Hawaii. And, and Bly, at the age of only 21 years old, had served as the sailing master for James Cook. Now, of course, we know that the voyage of the bounty didn't go as planned, but what was the original intention behind the voyage? In the Pacific, there's a tree called the breadfruit tree, which is a, an island staple. It, it produces a, a large green softball-sized fruit, which is very rich in carbohydrates. And the bounty's original plan was to pick up some of these fruit from Tahiti and transport them to the West Indies where it was hoped they could be used as cheap food for slaves Um, because during the American Revolutionary Wars, the slave plantations in the West Indies were suddenly cut off from corn supplies on the American mainland. The, The price of corns had skyrocketed and so there was this kind of zany plan to take this this other this other food staple which which occurred naturally in the Pacific and transport it to the West Indies to replace the reliance of the plantations on corn. At what point in the voyage would you say things began to turn sour? Can you identify a place when it happens? There's there's a lot of evidence that things went sour during the bounty's outward voyage. Basically when the bounty had arrived in Tahiti by that point, Bly had already fallen out with all of his officers. Everyone was was already fed up with him. And I think it, it comes down to Bly's personality, which I sort of conclude in the book. Bly was a guy who was highly, highly competent, but also almost impossible to work with. And he had this knack for alienating almost everyone around him throughout his career. And w- when Bly sailed from England on the, on the bounty, he had this idea in his head that he wanted to undertake the perfect voyage. He didn't want there to be a single instance of physical punishment. He didn't want there to be a single case of, of scurvy on board because he'd, he'd watched his mentor, James Cook, manage to almost eliminate scurvy, which had, had just ravaged previous European voyages to the Pacific with these new enlightened methods for keeping a ship clean and and administering certain potions and antiscorbotics to to the seamen. And Bly had been inspired by that, and he wanted to follow Cook's example. 
The problem was he was fanatical and obsessive in enforcing these these new rules on on the decks of the bounty. He was also, unfortunately, because the bounty's complement was so small, the role of purser fell to him. The purser was the 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 crew member responsible for delegating the ship's rations to the seamen and and purses were often looked on with suspicion and resentment because they had this they had this impetus to be parsimonious with the ship's supplies so that they could sell back the surplus on the ship's return and and Bly was a very parsimonious man throughout his life and so the early squabbles on the bounty were around food cleanliness Bly began berating seamen who he who he thought were stepping out of line or not following his his rigid rules and and causing public scenes and those those kinds of incidents only magnified during the bounty's inward voyage when when she left Tahiti. Now, even despite uh, these clashes that were taking place on board the ship, mutiny is still a very drastic step to take and could have resulted in the the hanging of, of everyone involved had they been captured. So, do we know what prompted Christian to take that fateful step? As you say, Rob. Mutiny is a hanging offence. It's a big deal. Well, Bly would have us believe that the mutiny was closely planned. It was it was the result of his corrupt officers carrying out a plan that had hatched. Because of the nine decadent months that they'd spent in Tahiti, it, it had effectively made them soft. They missed the Tahitian lovers, the women who they'd met on Tahiti, and, and it was all about turning the bounty around and taking her back to Tahiti. That was Bly's version of the story. We've seen iterations of that ever since, especially in Hollywood and and in some of the more mainstream books. But the evidence suggests that that in fact the the mutiny was completely spontaneous, and that Fletcher Christian was in the midst of a kind of breakdown because of the treatment he'd been receiving from Bly the day before the mutiny. So so Bly's outburst had 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 got worse and worse at this point, uh, particularly around the issue of food. The day before the mutiny, he had got it in his head that the the bounty crew members had been stealing from his private stash of coconuts, if you can believe it. And so he called the entire ship's company together and he'd accused Fletcher Christian himself of, of stealing the coconuts. Um, he, he publicly called Christian a, a coward and a thief, which is a, a Terrible insult between gentlemen at that time. He'd shaken his fist in Christian's hand. And then, although there was no proof that there had been a theft, he punished the entire ship's company by cutting their yam ration. Even though there was a, a, an abundance of yams on board the ship because the ship had just left Tahiti. Now, this incident, which came out much later during the court-martial of some of the captured mutineers, is, is never mentioned by Bly in, in his account of the voyage. If we're to believe Bly, the the voyage up to the point of the mutiny had been one of, in his words, uninterrupted prosperity. There had been he, he had had no reason to believe that that his crew members might be might be angry with him that that there had been any issues of that kind. So during that incident, Fletcher Christian has been um, humiliated, and Fletcher Christian had decided to desert the ship. So. That night, Fletcher Christian actually made plans to get off the bounty and and take his chances in the Tongan Islands, which which the bounty was was currently sailing past. It was at some point during the night that 
he did away with that plan and managed to convince some of his core supporters, uh, some some of the the seamen, in fact, rather than officers, to go ahead and 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 actually take over the ship instead. So, how does a mutiny aboard a ship actually take place? What were the logistics of um, Christian and his allies' takeover? Well, it was chaos, and I'm sure there have been other mutinies that were um, executed a lot more effectively. But uh, in the case of the bounty, because it was impromptu and spontaneous, it, it really was a, a chaotic scene, and you can read about it in detail. Basically, every every minute detail of of that that morning in April 1789 is poured over in in the court martial testimony. So you know exactly what certain men were saying, where everybody was standing, uh, what was happening over the course of hours. As um, Bly is is brought up onto the quarter deck in his shirt sleeves, a lot of the crew members can't quite make up their minds what they're going to do, whether they should to to get into the 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 open longboat with Bly and and his core of supporters seems almost like suicide, but the the prospects around staying with the bounty aren't much better because, as you say, mutiny are hanging a fence. It was a a surreal and chaotic moment, and Fletcher Christian himself struggled to keep the situation under control. There there were debates about the kinds of provisions that Bly should be allowed to take with him. In the end, I think he only received a compass and a sextant, a s- small amounts of food and water. I go through the the incident of the mutiny in depth in the book because I thought it was important to get right. And and thankfully, you know, there was just this this abundance of material to work with there. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's one of the abiding mysteries of the story because there's no physical evidence for either outcome. Fletcher Christian's body was never found. And so either outcome exists as possibility. And I think that's part of what continues to make this story so interesting. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Now, your book, of course, follows Fletcher Christian's subsequent adventures after mutiny. But I wonder if we could briefly talk about what happened next to Bly, because his return to Britain is pretty astonishing, isn't it? It's astonishing. And it shows, it shows again, that this was a highly competent man, if not a genius. Um, his navigational skills were incredible. And he'd gone into his longboat with his, his, his 18 supporters huddled together. They were put in the longboat off the Tongan island of Tafua. And over over weeks, they would eventually make this astonishing journey of four thousand nautical miles to the to the Dutch East Indies and salvation. Blyde did this entire trip by dead reckoning, so he had only, as I said, his compass. Um, he had a log line to to measure the ship's speed with, and Fletcher Christian had kept the bounty's chronometer to himself, which was a crucial piece of equipment because. It made measuring a ship's longitude much easier. It was like a clock, basically. You could use it to compare local time with Greenwich median time and 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 find longitude that way. Bly had none of that. He just he just had the 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 absolute basics. And yet he managed to make this this incredible journey several times during the open boat voyage. It seemed that he would be overthrown again by his own supporters. Uh, because the lot of them almost starved to death. They were eating whatever they could find, seabirds that they caught by hand. It was remarkable that they didn't die of dehydration, and, and they probably would have if it, if it didn't rain on them so much. So it's just another improbable aspect of the story, the fact that, that Bly and his supporters actually made it to Timor. He only lost one man on the journey, an unfortunate crew member who was beaten to death by Tongans on, on the island of Tafua, where... Bly stopped briefly, hoping to find some hospitality from the Tongans. But that went terribly wrong. And then for the rest of the voyage, he refused to trust any other indigenous peoples that they encountered along the way. And so they were just completely left to their own devices. It's it's not often mentioned that after touching at Timor, several more of Bly's men actually died in Timor while, while he arranged his own passage back to England. And he actually sailed back to England alone while his men were languishing in, in the Dutch East Indies, many of them very sick with malaria. But as you say, Rob, just a, a wild tale and, and a demonstration of, of how competent Bly was. And then on the on the other side of things, the mutineers, they didn't all end up in Tahiti, did they? Many of them ended up in this very remote place called Pitkin Island. How did that come about? After the mutiny... Fletcher Christian initially put his hopes on Tubawai, which is an island south of Tahiti, and he hoped to start his colony there. It was near to Tahiti, but 
European ships seldom called there. They had no reason to. James Cook had charted the island but never landed there. And so Fletcher Christian thought that that island might suit their needs, at least for the time being. But it didn't work out. They, they, they didn't stay there long because they soon came into conflict with the Polynesians who lived there. There were about 3,000 Polynesians on the island, and they initially had a very violent encounter with them. Um, the, the, they, they were making first contact with these people. James Morrison, one of the crew members on board, was ended up playing the role of a kind of amateur anthropologist re- recording the, the first notes that Europeans had ever made about, about the people of Tubuai. Uh, it didn't work out on Tubuai, so they cast a vote. Uh, Christian called everyone together and they cast a vote. Most, most of the men requested to be uh, put ashore on Tahiti where they could wait for a passing European ship. They'd had enough, but there were eight of, of Christian supporters who declared that they would follow him to the end, whatever he wanted to do. And so when Christian dropped off that party on, on Tahiti and continued sailing, he told the men who would remain with him that his intention now was to settle an uninhabited island. He didn't want to take his chances with, with an island that was already inhabited with Polynesians again. And in Bly's library, going through the, the books and maps in Bly's library, he'd come across this account of Pitcairn Island, which is in the middle of nowhere, incredibly remote. Pitcairn Island was perfectly suited to the mutineers' needs because it was uninhabited, as Christian wanted. It had natural resources. It had fresh water. But it was its location was also unknown to Europeans. So the island had been charted decades earlier by Philip Carteret, who was sailing as a consort to Samuel Wallace's ship. Samuel Wallace was the man who discovered Tahiti, at least for Europeans. But Carteret had plotted Pitcairn Island's coordinates using dead reckoning. And he'd made a mistake. He'd plotted it about 200 miles west of its actual position because he'd, he'd got the longitude wrong. And so Christian is, is searching for Pitcairn Island. And when he comes across Carteret's coordinates and there's nothing but o- open sea, he correctly assumes that the longitude is a mistake, but the latitude, which is an easier calculation, is probably correct. And so he sailed east along the line of latitude until he raised Pitcairn Island. And that was the final destination for Christian, his, his eight European followers, and the 19 Polynesians who were also on board. And speaking of those Polynesians, do we know how willingly they'd gone with Fletcher and his crewmates to Pitcairn? Some of them, it seems, certainly hadn't gone willingly. So there were Polynesians among them who wanted to take up lives with, with the mutineers. Uh, there were there were Tahitian women who seemed to have willingly become partners of, of the European men, but there were others who seemed to have been taken against their will. When the bounty was off Tahiti just before she sailed, the accounts suggest that Christian had the anchor cable cut and set sail without actually telling many of the Tahitians on board where the ship was going. So they didn't actually realize that they would never see their homeland again. The reality was that Christian needed souls in order to found this this colony that he had in his head. He needed people. 
in, or, in order to make it work, in order to survive off the map. So as you said at the start of the conversation, uh, the Pitcairn Islanders were essentially undiscovered, certainly by other Europeans, for around two decades. How much do we know about that intervening period? It's a difficult period to distill because as the years go on, the mutineers start dying, often violently. And whether that happens in one big massacre or lots of small ones is quite unclear. The crowd of narrators around Christian gets thinner and thinner. And in the end, you're left with only one surviving bounty mutineer, who was John Adams, who was the sole surviving mutineer left on the island when it was discovered by an American sealing ship in 1808. And for whatever reason, John Adams was incredibly unreliable. And his his stories about what had become of Christian and indeed the other mutineers kept changing over time. So this is a point in the book where it really comes down to speculation. But what little evidence there is suggests that around about 1793, a, a few years after the the mutineers had settled Pitcairn, the Tahitians, the Tahitian men who were, li- who were living on the island, had risen up against the European men uh, because they resented their poor treatment. That They had effectively been treated as as slaves uh, from the moment the, the mutineers touched on the island. They had divided the island into nine equal portions, one portion for each European, and the Tahitian men had a small group of, of Tahitian women to share amongst themselves, while each of the Europeans had a wife of his own. They were expected to do mundane tasks around the island, such as gathering firewood. And so, tragically, although there was this this opportunity to set up a little society from scratch on, on Pitcairn Island, it was set up unequally from the outset, according to the racist sentiments of the time. And it appears that that was the cause for the, the massacre that followed in which, in which it seems that most of the European men on Pitcairn Island were murdered, leaving only John Adams. And as for Fletcher Christian... And what conclusions do you come to as to his fate? Because I believe there have been rumours that he somehow made it back to England. Yes, that there have been compelling rumours that he he actually might have hailed a passing Western ship and made it back to England. There was a, a circle of, of poets in the 19th century called, called the Lake Poets, all hailing from the Lakes District, where Fletcher Christian also hailed from, who entertained this idea and, and wrote about it in, in their stories and poetry. And it's a, it's a compelling idea. It's fascinating to read about. In the book, I, I, I cover that theory. I, I reached my own conclusion. I, I decided that Fletcher Christian had probably died on Pitcairn Island. There was some circumstantial evidence that I found that suggested to me that it was most likely that, that he had died on Pitcairn Island during, during the uprising of the Tahitian men. But as you say, Rob, it's one of the abiding mysteries of the story because there's no physical evidence for either outcome. Fletcher Christian's body was never found. And so either outcome exists as possibility. And I think that's part of what continues to make this story so interesting. So so as you've described, the fate of the mutineers who ended up in Pitcairn generally wasn't a positive one. What about those who stayed in Tahiti? There obviously would have been more visible to 
Britain and other European powers. Did any of them get away with it? Well, the, yeah, the fate of the mutineers who chose to stay on Tahiti wasn't positive either. So those 14 mutineers ended up being picked up by a Royal Navy police mission. And that was the ship Pandora, which was commanded by Edward Edwards. They were rounded up. And even even those mutineers who um, insisted that they had been loyal to Bly and they had to stay on the bounty because there was no room on the longboat, men who, who in fact, Bly had, had said he would vouch for as, as the longboat was pulling away from the ship, even those men were, were placed in chains. Everyone was, is, was treated as guilty. And so they, they, they were all manacled together and kept in a roundhouse on the Pandora as she made her way around the Pacific looking for the other mutineers. Um, Edward Edwards had only captured 14. He, he still wanted to find the others and, and the, the greatest prize of all, Fletcher Christian. But, of course, he never did. When he entered the Pacific, he, he actually sailed within a few hundred miles of Pitcairn Island. But, as, as we said, the island still wasn't charted correctly, so, so he, he had no reason to, to look for it. On the Pandora's voyage back to England, she actually shipwrecked on the Great Barrier Reef off, off the east coast of Australia, and four mutineers died in chains. The rest were brought back to England and, and put on trial, and, and that's when the court-martial happens that, that produced so much evidence that we were talking about earlier. Three mutineers in the end were actually found guilty and, and hung for mutiny. The, the Royal Navy and the British establishment of that time needed the blame to fall on, on someone. This was a time where revolution was, was smouldering across the Channel in France, and the mutiny on the bounty was hugely embarrassing for the Royal Navy. It was a reminder of the fragility of, of naval discipline with very poor timing. And so even though a lot of evidence came out in the court-martial about Bly's misdeeds and his, his mistreatment of, of the crew members, it was, it was decided that these, these three crew members had, had to effectively take the fall for it. So having now researched the life of Fletcher Christian for your book, have you changed your opinion of him from when you started writing? How do you view your ancestor now? I would say, if anything, I find the story more fascinating now than I did as a child, just just with the new details that I know and feeling closer to the story and, and feeling that I've, I've sort of consolidated it in my head. Just the idea that Fletcher Christian was 23 years old when, when the bounty sailed and if, if the accounts of his, his death were to be believed, he was only 28 years old when he was killed on Pitkin Island. Also, just that, that he pulled it off, that after the mutiny, he managed to find Pitkin Island, which was so well suited to his needs and the needs of the, the mutineers as, as this last refuge for them that was beyond the reach of... of Western civilization, but that would shelter them, um, that would serve as the site for for the, the secret colony that, that Fletcher Christian was was trying to set up. That he did all this in his twenties. I mean, I'm I'm nearly thirty two, and yeah, when I when I reflect on just the incredible life that he had, the skill that it took for him to navigate to Pitkin Island, the awful psychological turmoil that he must have experienced not only 
because of his treatment by Bly, but following the mutiny, the fact that he'd committed this terrible offence, that he had the the fates of of so many men and women resting on his shoulders. I mean, the bounty mutiny spelled death and suffering for for many people, and and uh, he was to blame for it. The the fact that he had to in, endure that kind of responsibility and and difficulty. I think about that and and it's a source of more wonder and more fascination than, than it was when I was a child. That was Harrison Christian. Men Without Country, the true story of exploration and rebellion in the South Seas, is out now, published by Ultimo Press. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.